0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory, product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, Mike Drews and I speak about the topic on the fatal 510K flaw. There's a ton to talk about here, even more that we didn't get to, but we talked about things like what are some of the potential issues the 510K program presents? How are the companies dealing with these issues in the field? And also, what can you do to ensure that you are developing a safe and effective product regardless of the regulatory pathway that you choose? We talk about a lot of other things, but Mike Drews, He's one of the original gurus and a medical device professional in every sense of the word. He holds a PhD in biomedical engineering. He served as an expert witness, and he's one of the foremost regulatory minds in the medical device industry, currently serving as the president of vascular sciences. We hope you enjoy this episode with Mike Drews that we're calling the 510K Fatal Flaw. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today with me is Mike Drews, a familiar voice on the podcast. I'm excited to get to talk with him. We've been discussing a few different things. The 510K program is something we were thinking about discussing today. But first, how are you doing today, Mike?
1: I'm well, thank you, Elian for asking.
0: I'm excited to talk to you about this today. So you have some specific scenarios I know you wanted to talk about with the 510K program. I'll just go ahead and give the floor to you and see, you know, see what those scenarios are, first of all.
1: Well, thanks, Eddie. And as always, I appreciate the opportunity to to have this discussion with you and your audience today. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects near and dear to my heart, as well as to most of the medical device industry here in the United States. And that is the 510K. It is clearly the workhorse of the medical device industry here, but it is also the most controversial pathway to market. And we'll talk about one of the big reasons why. But To kick us off, Eddie, and let's start out with a not-so-hypothetical scenario. And the reason why I say not-so-hypothetical is because this is something that companies run into all the time. So let's say that you want to bring your new medical device onto the market here in the United States under the 510K. In fact, as I said, it is the workhorse of the industry. There are more than 3,000 devices that get 510K clearance per year here in the United States. And the 510K, in essence, means that we have to show that our device is substantially equivalent or basically the same as another device already on the market. We call that the predicate. So you want to bring your device onto the market using the 510K, but you find out that the predicate that you want to use has, in fact, undergone a Class 1 recall. Let me say that one more time. The predicate that you would like to use for your 510K has undergone a Class 1 recall. And for those that are not real familiar with recalls, class one recalls are the most severe type of recalls. What that means essentially is there is a reasonable probability. That's what the regulation says, a reasonable probability that the use of that recall device will cause serious adverse events, serious adverse health consequences or death to the patient. So the question to you, Edian, is fairly simple. You want to bring your device onto the market under the 510K. You've identified this predicate, but you found out in doing your homework that it underwent a class one recall. The question is, should you be allowed to do that? Is that kosher?
0: What are your thoughts? It's a good question. So, and I might just say one thing too, if you're substantially equivalent, Yeah, I mean, if that's essentially what we're talking about with 510K here, a substantial equivalent. Is it kosher to use something that is to release a product that is based on something that could potentially have killed somebody? I mean, there's a risk management element that has to take place there. At face value, I want to say, no, it doesn't sound kosher. Obviously, there's more facets that you have to get into with each situation.
1: Well, that's a great response, Eddie, and and thank you for allowing me to put you a little bit on... The spot. Always, I appreciate the fact that you don't think that that should be kosher. And again, I let me just clarify for our broader audience. I don't mean kosher in the religious sense of the word, obviously. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, get any nasty emails about that. Uh, but here's the.
0: I wanted to ask ahead. one thing. So you mentioned three thousand devices, and I know that is that's a lot more devices for the Class Two five K pathway. But let's just do another quick number for comparison for class three, just round numbers. What in comparison would you say are class threes?
1: Well, I can tell you that of the total number of devices that come onto the market, less than 5% are class threes, either PMAs or even more remote instances, HDEs, humanitarian device exemptions. So I can't give you the specific number off the top of my head, but less than 5%. Clearly- The vast majority are Class 2, 510K or some de novo. But anyway, coming back to the original question of, is it kosher? Should you be allowed to use a device as a predicate that, in fact, has undergone a Class 1 recall? The textbook answer is that, yes, that is kosher. In other words, current regulations do permit manufacturers to use medical devices subject to a Class 1 recall. As I said, that's the most serious designation, indicating a high probability of adverse health consequences or death that regulation does allow for for the use of such a predicate should the regulation allow for it or should it not that's i'll leave that as a rhetorical question temporarily but that's a a discussion that i want to to dig into here further now taking that one step further eddie and i think it's important not to overgeneralize Medical devices can experience problems and, as a result, undergo recalls for lots of different reasons. Some of the more common reasons include things like design issues, things like manufacturing issues, sometimes user or usability issues, uh, material issues. There's a litany of reasons. So when we talk about, for example, some people that think that we should ban, that we should not allow predicates to be used that are in fact undergoing a recall, I think that's putting a a thumbtack in with a sledgehammer. I think that's way overkill. Clearly, it should make sense to everybody in our audience, I think, that if the predicate device has undergone a recall that's designed related and your device is based on that same design, then I would like to think that it does not take an MD or a PhD or an RAC after somebody's name to appreciate that, gee, maybe it's not a great idea to compare the design of our device to the design of this other device when in fact, oh, by the way, there are known problems with this other device. On the other hand, if if the recall was caused by a manufacturing issue, and let's say, hypothetically speaking, that your device is being manufactured using a different method, than their device, or you've instituted measures to prevent those manufacturing problems in your manufacturing methods, then I have absolutely no problem using such a device as a predicate. So we have to be a little careful about overgeneralizing as we continue to peel back this onion at the end. Does that make sense?
0: 100%. And, you know, it makes me think of two sides of the design and development. So the one side, obviously, is what regulatory pathway are you going to take? What's the Quickest way to market, however, you want to look at that. But on the other side, and I've heard you say this before, when it comes to medical devices, the engineering should never be overlooked. There's the true engineering. We don't just do engineering because regulations require us to do that. So there's kind of a marrying of those two sides of the coin here. But I would be curious to hear more about maybe the statistics about the recalled predicates used in 510Ks. You you mentioned that they can be used on, or a 510K may be based on a, a, A device that has undergone a class one recall. What are some of the statistics around that? How often does that happen?
1: Yeah, great question, Eddie. And it actually happens more frequently than some people might like to think. By the way, the topic of today's podcast is sort of based on two studies that were published just a couple of months ago in in January of this year, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, which is a, a fairly prestigious medical journal. And we can certainly provide the references along with the uh, the podcast information on the website. But here are some statistics from those two, two publications. About 11% of the 35,000 medical devices that were cleared by the FDA under the 510K between the years 2003 and 2018, about 11% of them underwent a high-risk class 1 or a moderate-risk class 2 medical device recall. So about 11% of all 510Ks, we're talking a sample size of more than 35,000, so that's a pretty good sample size, underwent either a class 1 or a class 2 recall. Getting a little bit more focused to your question about predicates, of those 35,000, a little over 4,000 of them of the recalled products, about 6% cited predicates that were also subject to at least one recall. So, again, I know I'm going through some numbers here. Let me say that one more time. Of the 4,000 recalled devices, about 6% of them cited predicates that were, in fact, the subject of their own recall. So, in other words, there were known problems to the predicate device even before the new 510K was cleared. The conclusion here, of course, is that recalls have raised concerns that substantial equivalence may be a poor marker, I would say a a surrogate biomarker to use a little regulatory jargon, a poor marker of safety and efficacy. Now, that's one of the big conclusions of not just these studies, but a number of articles that have been published along these lines over the, the many years that the 510K has been con- controversial, which is essentially since it was created in 1976. Let me just tick through a couple more statistics, yeah, Eddie, and please. then happy to let you chime in. There were 156 510Ks that underwent a class one recall fairly recently between. 2017 and 2021, about 44%, or almost a half of them, used a predicate that also underwent a class one recall, which means to me that not only has this been going on for a while, it seems to be happening more and more frequently in the last half dozen or so years. These two JAMA studies that I mentioned a moment ago are just the latest in a string of concerns about the 510K that, in fact, go back well more than a decade. I would argue, you know, go back a half a century to when the 510K was created in 1976. In addition to that, there have been a number of very high-profile examples of medical device that have caused problems, like, for example, the pelvic mesh fiasco and the metal-on-metal hip implant fiasco, both of which I've been involved with. You may remember Eddie and a little over a decade ago, back in 2011, the Institute of Medicine, the IOM, came out with their famous or their infamous report and recommendation to the FDA that basically said that the FDA should throw the entire 510k out the window. Uh, I have said publicly many, many times that I never agreed with that recommendation. I think that would be truly throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But one of the reasons is if we did throw the 510K out, what would we have left? The de novo and the PMA, essentially. So we would be treating all new medical devices as either a de novo or a PMA. That doesn't make any sense to me. And finally, in 2018, you know, FDA did announce plans to strengthen and modernize the 510K. But quite frankly, that really has not gone anywhere in the last five or six years. And in my opinion, that's not something that should come from the FDA that's something that's really a matter of healthcare policy that's really something that needs to come from congress and the last thing that i just want to mention very quickly Eddie, and then i'm i'm happy to uh, to to let you chime in with questions or or comments. Just want to remind everybody of what my friend Dr. David Kessler said. Former FDA commissioner, he was actually the at the commissioner of the FDA for most of the the decade of the 90s, and one of my uh, former bosses at the FDA. He likes to point out that when the 510k was created by Congress in, in 1976, it was intended to be the exception rather than the rule. Let me say that once one more time because i think this might be a bit surprising for the for a lot of the audience the former fda commissioner said that when the 510k was created a half a century ago it was intended to be the exception rather than the rule now fast forward to, to 2023 a half a century later that trend has become reversed it's become the rule rather than the exception and this is a direct quote from dr kessler he mentioned this in the bleeding edge video among other places He said the vast majority of medical devices today, regrettably, are regulated under this framework, meaning the 510K. Now, I think it's unfortunate that Dr. Kessler is saying this after he left the FDA. What was he saying while he was still at the FDA? But that's a topic of a different discussion. Nonetheless, that's a little bit of the the backstory here to not just simply talk about the recall situation, but to give the broader context as well. So again, I went through an awful lot there. What are your thoughts so far?
0: Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that you said a the risk of a class one recall was 6.4 times higher for descendants that use predicates. That's that, that's incredible. So if, if the descendant went through a class one recall, that's that's really a huge number. And I'm curious if you have any specifics as to why that might be the case. I mean, uh, is it is it truly people are just, copying like for like design? Are they are they neglecting the uh their own risk management? What are the specifics behind that uh, in your mind?
1: Well it's a great question, Eddie, and And again, thank you for the opportunity to continue to peel this onion back layer by layer, because there's there's a lot to unpack here. And I love what you said about, I'm paraphrasing what you said a moment ago that the, the, the manufacturer copied the design or, or copied in, in some way in the 510k world, you know, when companies say, what's the, the simplest, the easiest, the quickest, the cheapest way that I can get my device onto the market? My regulatory advice to them is very simple. Make your device as close as you possibly can to a predicate, to an existing device. Now, from a regulatory perspective, that is the correct response. But as you can appreciate, Edian, from a biomedical engineering perspective, and first and foremost, that's my background, biomedical engineering, that makes my blood pressure go up when I have to give companies that advice. Because we're, we've incent, essentially created incentives for companies to, in academia, we would call that plagiarize. And so when you copy somebody, you're copying their good things. You're also copying their not so good things. So it stands to reason, coming back to the recall question, if the predicate device was recalled, especially if it was a design-related recall, and your device is based on, is predicated on that design, you're probably copying their problems, their mistakes as well. But let's take this a little bit further, about the 6.4 times higher likelihood of a problem, because I think anybody with, quite frankly, an IQ of more than five, that should not be a surprise. Out of those more than 35,000 uh, 510Ks that I mentioned a moment ago, as I said, about 11% of them were recalled. Here's a couple of other interesting numbers. The average 510K uses 2.6 predicates. 2.6 predicates. That was a surprise even to me. Huh. I, you know, My advice to companies is if you can use a single predicate, although I will never be adverse to using more than one predicate if I have to. We could use, and I did a webinar for, for Greenlight a few years ago on substantial equivalence, one of my most popular webinars where we go into this in more detail. I will use the primary reference predicate strategy i will use the multiple predicate strategy i will even use in extreme cases the split predicate strategy even though that is very very controversial but you don't have to use only a single predicate and yet and this was a surprise to me looking at more than 35,000 510ks the average number of predicates were 2.6 and the mean age of those predicates on the low end was three and a half years, and on the high end was about seven and a half years, which kind of begs the question, if you remember, maybe a year or two ago, there was a lot of chatter about this so-called 10-year predicate rule. Basically, there was an idea where to try to prevent a problem we call predicate creep, that 510ks should only be allowed to use a predicate that was less than 10 years old. Well, these statistics show that the vast majority of 510ks already do, in fact, use a predicate that's less than 10 years old. So in my opinion, the 10-year predicate rule is totally, is is a dumb idea. It's not going to solve any kind of a problem. And finally, in terms of the number of of devices that are cited with recalls, 4.3 devices cited predicates with a single recall. About 1% of devices cited, cited predicates with two recalls. And most interesting to me is almost 1% of devices. Now, again, 1% of thirty-five 000, That's a big number. Yeah. Almost one, five, almost one percent cited predicates with three or more recalls to it. The conclusion of this study, and it's in my opinion, it's a it's a statement of the obvious. The JAMA studies concluded that of the more than thirty-five thousand five ten 510Ks that were cleared in that period of time between 2003 and 2018 they demonstrated the obvious to me that is the more recalls that your predicate experiences the more likely you're going to have problems yourself unless and this is the very very big caveat uh, uh, at the end unless you do your homework in advance and that's what I'd like to to drill into as we continue but Thoughts or comments on anything that? No,
0: I'd I'd love to keep going because what makes what really stands out in my mind, like you said, just the specific issues with using the um, a, pre, a predicate that has had gone through multiple recalls okay, well, how do we solve this? You mentioned not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So how do you, how would you, like in a perfect world, Mike Drews has the wand, how How would you parse through some of these things? Because I can see a few different pathways forward that might make sense. But of course, you know, regulatory, you're not going to change it overnight. But I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on this.
1: Well, first of all, let me be crystal clear. I do not advocate this simple-minded solutions like, No 510K should allow to use a predicate that was undergone a recall. In fact, not only is that a bad idea because it doesn't solve the problem, it's also a bad idea because it doesn't take into account the law of unintended consequences. In other words, that's going to preclude me from using my professional judgment to choose the best predicate. So here is my what you're calling my ideal world. It's actually it's, it's quite simple. When you use a device as a predicate, do your homework first. It's as simple as that, do your homework first. So what do I mean by doing your homework? Look at the history of that predicate. And by the way, don't just look at the history of that particular predicate or the two and a half on average predicates that go into a 510K, but look at the history of similar devices as well. There are almost always other devices that we could use as a predicate. So look at the history of those devices And look at the predicates of your predicate. In other words, what problems did the predicate of your predicate experience? And what problems did the predicate of your predicate of your predicate experience? And so on and so on. This is, uh, in my opinion, the best solution to the whole predicate creep problem. Do your homework. Look for problems. Look for recalls. Use post-market surveillance. Use whatever tools, tips, and tricks that that you have. And I have lots of suggestions I give companies all the time. This, by the way, for those in our audience that work in the class three university, and you asked about class three devices a moment ago, this should be no surprise to them whatsoever, because what I'm describing here is a class three PMA requirement for all PMAs. You have to go through this analysis, but for class two devices, for 510ks and also for de novos, there is no regulatory requirement to do that. Perhaps there should be. I would not be adverse to that, but I would like to think that if we're going to call us ourselves medical device professionals, and I use that word professional very, very purposely, very, very seriously, I would like to think that we would not need a requirement like that. So this is required for all PMA devices. It's not required for 510ks. If you're using your own device as a predicate, in other words, if the predicate device is from your own company, then this should be very, very easy for you to do. Because you're going to have, I hope, access to all of the history, all of the information, the complaint handling and yada, yada, yada. On the other hand, if you're using a predicate from a a competing company, they're not going to be keen on, you know, if you call them up and say, hey, can you tell me the, the history of your device? But that said, it might require a little homework, but it's not impossible to do. You know, there's a lot of very valuable information out there that is publicly available. Uh, The CIA, uh, I remember, said many times the most valuable intelligence they get is from publicly available sources. In other words, they'll look at, for example, the background in a picture and see something that nobody else has seen before or something like that. So don't overlook what is out there publicly. So first and foremost, do your homework. If you don't find any problems with your predicate, then terrific. But ask yourself the question, are you sure? You know, the late, great Carl Sagan said the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because you didn't find a problem with your predicate or similar devices doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't one. If you do your homework and you do find problems with your predicates, that's not necessarily a deal breaker, although some people think that it should be a deal breaker. But that, in my opinion, should not be a deal breaker. The next question is find out why did those problems happen? Like I said, if it was a manufacturing related issue and your device is manufactured using a different method and that problem can't happen to you, then fine. Put that into your documentation and you're done. If it's something that could happen to your device, then what kind of measures can you institute to mitigate the risks and the resulting harms that would result from, from that problem? All of those things, in my opinion, go into the attributes of what I call a medical device professional. A professional knows to do all those things anyway. Banning devices with problems i e uh devices under recall, as i said, in my opinion, is overkill. It's truly throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh like the 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 ten year predicate rule and so my solution to you asked in in my ideal world. In, my solution is to A, treat people like professionals. In other words, let them make decisions based on you know, their experience, their recommendations. That's part one. But part two, hold them accountable for their actions and their decisions. In other words, if it turns out that they, dev- they bring their device onto the market using a predicate, that underwent a recall and they didn't know about it, or they didn't institute measures to mitigate the chances of problems from happening and so on. In my opinion, Etienne, and maybe this might be, sound a little harsh to some people, that is not acting as a medical device professional. In fact, that is you know, making a mistake or maybe flat-out negligence, and people like that should be held accountable. Let me just remind everybody that in addition to providing regulatory and quality consulting for companies, I also work as a product liability expert witness in cases like these. And let me tell you, it makes my job very easy if I can identify a problem, and I've been involved in many cases like this that led to very large judgments. If I can identify a known problem in the past that that have happened to a predicate or a competing device or a similar device that the company either didn't know about or they knew about but didn't sufficiently mitigate, doesn't take a JD after somebody's name Eddie, in to, to hear a ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching.
0: Yeah, and what you're saying makes a hundred, I mean, I'm a hundred percent behind what you're saying because it, it feels relatively obvious. If you reverse engineer someone's design, you're inherently taking some of the issues with that. And so you have to be able to analyze that design, determine whether or not those things are going to result in, in failures in the field. Another thing that's interesting to me about the 510K process is the predicate had a predicate potentially, and so you do need to do your due diligence. Look at the friends of your friends, kind of a concept, because those people are going to influence you in in this sense. You know that previous design that you may not be looking at may be influencing your design. Another thing that made me think of is the post market surveillance. Uh, you may be looking only at the uh, adverse events related to your product, but what about your competitors' products or similar products that that are you um, could could uh, your technology is based on? And wonder if you have any thoughts on that as well. I have a lot of thoughts
1: on that, Eddie, and I give recommendations to companies all the time. I actually teach a, a two-day short course on post-market surveillance and complaint handling. I think, and again, this might sound you know, harsh to some people, but I think only doing post-market surveillance on your device and your device alone is, mm-hmm. um, at the very least, um, not being a medical device professional. And at most, um, possibly incompetence. You know, again, it, it defies common sense. It defies logic. If, if you're bringing your device onto the market under the 510K and the logic of the 510K is very simple. If my device is basically the same as or substantially equivalent to another device and that other device is already on the market. It's assumed to be safe and effective. Therefore, my device is assumed to be safe and effective. In other words, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the logic of the 510K. I'm not suggesting that I agree with it or not, but that's the logic. It's one, of the, it, it works most of the time. It does not work all of the time. This is exactly why, over a decade ago, the Institute of Medicine said to the FDA that you should throw out the entire 510K, which, as I said earlier, is is overkill, in my opinion. But not to look at post-market surveillance of other devices when they're similar to yours, to me, just doesn't make any sense. It is a requirement in the PMA world. It's not a requirement in the 510K world. It's not in the regulation. It's not in the QSR on the quality side, but it is a recommendation that I give to virtually all of the companies that I work with when we get to that point.
0: So you gave some advice for companies who may be going through the predicate process or the 510K process, looking at their predicates, looking at the history, looking at the predicates, predicates even post-market surveillance of existing things that may not be your predicate, those all make sense. But if this is still happening, uh, you know, for the last several years then some people aren't listening, cause this isn't necessarily new. So I want, and, you know, I, I hate to say it because we should be focused on the patient safety. We should be focusing on improving the quality of life for those we're building these devices for. But if nothing else, people need to think about the economic value. A class one recall is not a cheap situation to go through either. Your your business, that's a big deal as well. Something to think about. I don't and not
1: just, uh, it's, I think that's a good point, Eddie, and not just the, what I would call the direct economic impact, but the indirect economic impact, usually recalls, especially uh, a class one recall, the most uh, uh, severe, that's going to generate a lot of press, not necessarily positive press Mm -hmm. either. So you're going to be in sort of damage control mode. I can also now I have to be really, really careful what I say here, because as you and most of our audience know, I also work as a consultant for the FDA. When I see a company come in with a submission and I know or I find out when I do my own due diligence that the company has, let's just say a series of recalls, more recalls than I might expect in a situation like that. I'm probably not going to give them the benefit of the doubt. In other words, I'm probably going to look at them, you know, scrutinize them more closely, if you will, than another company that's been in business for a long time that has just a few relatively minor problems along the road and so on. Now, to be fair, How many, if any, you know, other FDA reviewers take this into their calculus, I have no idea. But it's one of the many factors that I take into account. So the simple reality is it's not just the direct economic impact of the recall that we have to take into account, but all the other things. And obviously, the economics of a a product liability lawsuit is off the charts.
0: I think in every industry, you know, this is something that every industry, it's human nature really. You need to look at the full picture. You can look at just what's on the paper, but a company's history matters. It really does. And the other thing that I was I was going to mention is around post-market surveillance. You know, the the medical device industry is a unique industry, but we have a lot to learn from other industries. I, I don't I would never want to denigrate or, or you know, uh, speak poorly of the medical device industry, because I think there's a lot of things other industries could learn from the medical device industry. But this is one area. What other product uh, or industry ignores their competition? You know they pay attention to the the ecosystem that they're in because their competitor is likely in the same ecosystem and they will likely will be impacted if another product is is going through something. So um, it's something that we could learn from, I think, from other companies as well.
1: Well, your point is very well taken. I, I appreciate the sentiment, Edian, but on the other hand, I don't want to paint an overly negative picture here. I don't want to paint with an overly broad brush. We have to be a little careful, as I said earlier, about overgeneralizing. So there are already a lot of companies in our industry that are doing all of the things that I'm suggesting, and in some cases more than what I'm suggesting. And I think that's terrific. But unfortunately, good news does not sell. Bad news sells. <laughs> and so we're, we're we're talking about you know some number of companies and the people in them that are not going ab- above and beyond, you know, what what is required.
0: And I do have a question about that, because like you said, 2018, there was a, a guidance put out by the FDA about this. I wonder if you, being as connected as you are to the industry, do you see any change in the future happening with the FDA? I don't know, it's all speculation.
1: Well, it's a great question. And I'm often reminded of the um, French philosopher, I can't remember his name, who said the more things change, the more they remain the same. Yeah. So I hear a lot of talk, a lot of chatter about change. But let's be honest, at the end of the day, how much of this really changes? Um, It's kind of like I've used this metaphor and other examples before. It's kind of like our industry you can think of as a heavily loaded freight train barreling down the tracks at 60 miles an hour. Very difficult to get it to change direction without causing a derailment. On the other hand, some people would argue that, gee, maybe a derailment is exactly what we need in order to get people to wake up and pay attention. I don't want to go so far as to cause a derailment. That's really not my intent here. But what I try to do in having discussions like this and and in other venues as well is get, get, you know, two of the wheels up in the air just to kind of scare (laughs) people a little bit, just kind of wake them up and say, hey, if we don't do something, you know, Maybe the train will derail, so let me be crystal clear. I think all of these problems are fixable, solvable problems. I don't think solution is to throw away the 510K. I don't think the solution is to ban recalled devices to prevent them from being used as as predicates. I don't think that the 10-year predicate rule is, is a solution. I think those are perhaps good thoughts for discussion, But I think what we need is more people having open, honest discussions about not just the things that we as an industry do well, but more importantly, the things that we as an industry don't do so well and figure out ways to to make them better. Maybe it's me, uh, Eddie, and maybe I'm, you know, naive. Maybe I just fell off the turnip truck yesterday, but I do believe there are solutions to all of these problems.
0: Yeah, and. I, I really appreciate that you however dark things go, whatever statistics we pull up I I really do appreciate the fact that you pull try to pull a positive takeaway because that really there is a positive takeaway honestly here if you look at those numbers, okay, 6.4 times more likely to go through a class one recall if your predicate went through a class one re- recall well, that's for me as a manufacturer okay, I have an easy fix I I I could look at the the history of my predicate and maybe I can avoid that particular. You know situation. So those are a lot of good takeaways. I mean, there's a there's a silver lining for every dark cloud, honestly. Of course, there's always a dark cloud for every silver lining. that's <laughs> <point>. <laughs> but any other thoughts that you have on this subject? i mean i I appreciate you taking the time to to discuss this today
1: again, thanks for the opportunity to have this very important discussion. Just just a few highlights to to kind of reflect and and yeah. summarize, you know what we've talked about in the in the last half an hour or so the 510k is what i would call a pretty good program it's not a perfect program and in my opinion anybody that says it's perfect including some of the very large industry organizations that that represent you know the medical device industry i think is just naive if if not you know worse it's definitely not a perfect program we have to acknowledge the simple reality as i've shared with you in the statistics and as you have pointed out that there are a lot of 510k devices that have been subject to recalls, including class one recalls that, in fact, use as their predicate a device with a history of known problems, uh, with a history of of recalls. So the question is, what do we do about it? And I've tried to offer some very, very specific, tangible suggestions, uh, like, for example, doing your homework and like, for example, making sure that any of the problems that have happened in the past cannot happen to you or do as much as you can to mitigate the chances of that happening to you. It should be no surprise to any of us that devices that do have a substantially higher risk of a subsequent recall when the device that they're based on has also undergone recalls. So, you know, do we need stronger safeguards to prevent problematic predicates from being used in the future to ensure patient safety? That's what some people believe. That's what the conclusion of these two particular articles basically say. I would like to think that we would not need regulation like that if we act as medical device professionals. And again, I'm using that word professional, not loosely. On the contrary, I'm using it very, very specifically and seriously, kind of like a surgeon. You know, if you needed surgery, you would have the expectation that a surgeon knows what he or she is doing and not only do they know should they know what he what he or she is doing in quote unquote normal situations but in the situations where they something unexpected happens you would expect them to have the knowledge the experience the the intellect to be able to you know to, to 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 act responsibly as well i i hold the same standard to medical device professionals as well. So I would like to think that we would not need regulation for that. I, but regrettably, uh, Edian, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. There are people out there that either out of naivete or simply ignorance, they don't know those things. So if we are going to create more regulation and believe me, as a regulatory consultant myself, you people might think, well, gee, you must be a big fan of regulation and creating more regulation. On the contrary, I think we have you know, way too much regulation, and most of it is a bunch of you-know-what. But maybe if we do need to create new regulation, let's at least have a discussion on uh, what is the most effective way to do it in the real world. Right. Not in the theoretical world, but in the real world. So those are some of my Final thoughts? What do you think, Eddie, and, uh, would you add to that list? And then we can wrap this up.
0: Yeah, the the top down approach of, you know, changing things, you know, providing regulation to stop or start the industry in these different ways. I almost look at it as a barrier to entry for medical devices to a certain degree. I mean, you're right. I that, That's not my preference, a regulation, but there. Like you said, unfortunately, it necessary, but a bottom up approach is the only way to truly change the industry where you are changing the people you're working with and changing the mindset, shifting them more towards a true quality approach, for example. So I suppose it could be the argument could be made that both are needed. My preference would be to change the company, to change the, the atmosphere that you personally are in, because at the end of the day, really. You know, we talk about government. We talk about companies. So those are ideas. Ultimately, we're talking with with people. And if you don't, if you can't convince them of approaching things with the patient safety, with the goal in mind, then it's not really going to work anyway. They're going to find another way to break the system. So,
1: could not agree more. And just to wrap this up, and with one very last story, uh, <laughs> please. Uh, and I've shared this with with our audience in the past, so some people may have heard it. Probably the single most common question that I get from medical device companies across the board, I get it every week, in some cases every day. They come to me and they say, Mike, you work with lots of different medical device companies. You also work as a consultant for the FDA. If we came to the FDA with our new medical device, what do you think FDA would want to see in terms of benchtop testing, animal testing, clinical testing, blah, blah, blah? And I say, you know what? I understand that's an important question, and I understand why you're asking me this question, but let's think about this from a totally different perspective. Let's remove FDA completely from the equation. Let's pretend for the moment that FDA did not exist. Sooner or later, a family member, a friend, maybe even yourself, will be on the receiving end of your medical device. When that day occurs, what would you, Eddie and what would eat me, Mike, what would, you know, uh, we need to see in terms of Evidence, you know, s- safety, efficacy, performance, blah, 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 to put our own stamp of endorsement, approval to say that this is okay to be used in my neighbor, in my spouse, in my child, in my case, my seven year old grandson. And then and only then can we go to the FDA and have an intelligent conversation as to what is really necessary to do here. Whether something is required or not, quite frankly, I could care less. What makes sense? Now, again, I don't want to be overly flippant because I get emails from people. Oh, how could you say regulation doesn't? No, no, that that's not my point. But if the regulation makes sense, then do it. If the regulation doesn't make sense and we do it anyway and we all agree that it doesn't make sense and we do it anyway, is that a problem with the system or is that a problem with us? Something to think about. Yeah,
0: I really appreciate it, Mike. The three takeaways, if I were to kind of sum them up, the one. The more recalls a predicate goes through, the more likely a recall is in your future. So I suppose that's the number one for me. Number two, when you use a device as a predicate, you need to do your homework first. I really appreciate those takeaways. Look at the history. Look at the the friend of a friend, uh, your predicate of your predicates. And then the third thing would be keep an eye on the competition, if I were to, to sum this up. But really appreciate you coming on the, the podcast today, Mike. And I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few of the points I took away from the conversation were if you're pursuing a 510K submission, number one, if your predicate had a recall, the more likely you are to have a recall in your future. So do your homework, look closely at your predicate and their predicate and their predicate. You really need to understand the genealogy of your device. And then third point is don't stop. Once you've submitted, once you've gone and commercialized that product, Pay close attention to the post-market surveillance of your competitor's devices so that you can detect all of these problems before they reach you personally. If you enjoyed this episode, please reach out to Mike Drews on LinkedIn. Let him know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru, or look me up on LinkedIn and uh, drop me a line. If you're interested in learning about our software that's specifically built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our CAPA management system, design controls, risk management, or electronic data capture for your clinical investigations, this is software that's built for MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru. Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. If you've never done it before, I'd be happy to help you figure it out. Let us be your first review. It helps other people find us. It helps us know how we're doing and it helps us know who's listening. Thanks again. Y'all are the best. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Group, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact Greenlight.guru today.